So today I'm going to talk to you about drawing near, at your feet being the appropriate concept, at the feet of Jesus drawing near, uh, subtitled, it's going to womb here for a couple of minutes till we get it that ironed up, but subtitled, Sitting and Spinning. And uh, you'll understand the metaphor because there's a story about when Jesus is on his way, coming out of Galilee in his final day's journeys through the different villages, and they, he comes to Bethany, which is just about, you know, three kilometers or so outside of Jerusalem. And some of you who have been with Pastor Ronda Israel have probably been there. But uh, Jesus comes into the house of Martha and Mary and, of course, Lazarus. Um, and he is welcomed there by Martha. But Martha is um, busied about with much serving and distracted. But Mary chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus listening to his word. So hence the idea of sitting and spinning. So Mar Martha's got plates spinning everywhere while Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. So let's read the passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had been made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now let's uh, show a picture of what modern Bethany looks like. This is the, the town of Bethany in Israel, just so to kind of give you some reference there. You know, in Luke chapter 10 and, and chapter 11, we are given um, three different examples regarding the cost of discipleship, of following the Lord. The first example comes earlier in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And a true disciple loves without regard for race or place, right? Because the, the priest, the Levite, they went by on the other side. They avoided contact with the wounded, robbed, and injured man and uh, went on their way probably because um, they didn't want to become ceremonially unclean because that would mean they would have to go through several cleansing rituals in order to continue on in their Levitical or priestly duties. And uh, also the costs involved of helping that poor man who was, had fallen among thieves and was stripped naked and everything robbed from him and left bleeding on the side of the road. So it was going to cost them something. And he was a Samaritan, uh, uh, you know, a Samaritan finally came to help this dear man. And the real discipleship goes beyond race or place, right? Not just your function or the race. Real discipleship gets involved with people. Amen. And I want to ask you a question. This is a question I asked the um, 
men's early Bible study on Thursday a couple of weeks ago, who is, and also last week at Sunday Circles, who is the true Good Samaritan? If you think about the story for a minute, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, so he goes from the Lord's city, and he's going downhill, and he falls among someone who kills, steals, and destroys, right? So the original Adam went through a fall, was stripped of everything. He lost his estate with, uh, with God. He was robbed, killed, <laughs> virtually killed, and destroyed as he had fallen from the city of God. Adam went through a fall, right? Who is the good Samaritan in the story? It's Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan who goes beyond race and place, pours in oil of the Spirit, wine representing his blood, takes him to a place, an inn where he pays for everything for, uh, for all of his expenses and says, I'm going to return in two days. One day with the Lord is a thousand years, and in two days the Lord will come back. Amen. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. That's one lesson that Luke tells us is that discipleship costs, but it goes beyond race or place. Secondly, we come to the story of Mary and Martha, which we just read. And Mary and Martha show us a true disciple places Jesus first. Mary has chosen the one good thing that's important, to sit at my feet and listen to his word. That's what we need to do. We often get very busy with all of the accoutrements of life, and that's okay, but not at the expense of relationship with Jesus. Amen? So we must seek his face. Thirdly, the next lesson that we learn in this whole pericope, this whole set of passages in Luke 10 and 11, is that a true disciple is persistent in prayer because they came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then he gives them the outline of the Lord's Prayer. It's an outline of prayer, right? And it's, uh, well, I don't have time to get into all that. But anyways, so very quickly now, a few berries in Scripture, we often have trouble discerning who's who and what's what, right? So here's a nice little list. Uh, so we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. We have um, Mary the wife of Clopas, mother of James. We have Mary Magdalene. We have Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And we have Mary, the mother of John, whose surname Mark. And we also have another Mary, a sixth Mary, who is a Christian named in Paul's greetings to the church in Rome in chapter 16 of Romans. So one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good part. She was hungry for something else. She saw in the words of Jesus real life, and she was hungry for it. Um, uh, recently reading the biography of Booker T. Washington, one of the things that he talks about was his insatiable thirst to learn how to read and how his father actually made him, this is uh, the, in the antebellum days after the Civil War, and they're trying to, uh, black Americans are trying to figure out how to go past their estate of slavery and begin to, to, to grow and to learn and to, you know, to throw off the bonds of oppression that have kept them. 
And, and he's talking about how his father actually made him continue to work instead of going to school. And he found really creative ways to still go to school. And, uh, but he was so hungry to learn to read, to learn the alphabet and to read. And that really struck me as I was listening to that. I thought, man, uh, Lord, if, 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 if Mr. Washington had a heart desire that impelled him as a young boy to learn to read, how much more should we allow the Spirit of God to impel us to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to his word? Amen. Great example. Few things are necessary, indeed only one. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word is the priority. Mary was, Martha rather, was distracted by her hospitality in that moment. Mary had chosen the better portion. And it's very interesting in Greek because it's like it's saying, Mary has chosen the best part of the meal, right? So the word of God that Jesus was giving was actually feeding her soul, her life, right? And Martha's busy. She's doing the hospitality thing, which is right and, and even beautiful. She opened her home. She evidently had, you know, control over what was going on in the home. And, and Mary and, and Lazarus lived with her. And she was busy about doing all the things that are necessary, but yet she was so distracted and she got even angry about um, how, um, you know, she goes up to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that, that Mary's just not, she's abandoned me in the kitchen, essentially, you know? And uh, I like what Tim Keller says, there, there was a lot of heat going on in the kitchen, but it wasn't all the food that was being cooked. It was Martha, it was Martha being upset, right? That's pretty cool. So anyway, so, and so Mary chooses the better portion, the better meal, so to speak, and, uh, and Martha is doing the necessary thing, but she is not listening to Jesus. And so she goes up to Jesus and says, can't you tell Mary, right? So here she is, and in part getting angry because Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you know, no, Mary's chosen the good part. I'm not going to tell her to go help you. So she has unanswered prayer, right? How many of us get angry because we've been so busy doing good things for other people, but we can't figure out why God doesn't answer our prayers? And so we get mad and we say, God, tell them to do something. And the Lord says, you know, hey, sit at, sit at my feet. And it's almost like the Lord says to Martha, he says, uh, I don't remember ordering dinner. A lot of times we try to make up stuff that we think is good that will help the kingdom of God, and it's just busy work. It's not really based on the word of the Lord, right? So in principle, we need to kind of keep that tucked in our minds and hearts. Everything in Jesus' world starts with his word. In the beginning was the word, right? Everything in Jesus' world starts with his word, so we've got to listen for his word. Did Jesus actually ask for dinner? It's important to wait at the gates of the Lord, wait at his feet. Proverbs 8 said, blessed are those who listen to me watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway for those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. Uh, wisdom is personified here and uh, I bet it's hinting about Jesus, Proverbs chapter 8. 
Zephaniah's indictment against corrupt Jerusalem was that she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her friend, to her God, rather. Um, this morning, about 4 o'clock, I woke up, and I heard the Lord speak to me and just say two words, draw near. That's what I heard from the Lord this morning. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Then he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Prayer at the throne of grace helps us in our future. It's like, I used to liken it to like, as you spend time in prayer and you're praying about your life and, and everything going on and whatever else is in your world, stuff that the Lord puts on your heart, you are storing up grace for your future that will help you in your time of need. It's a good thing to draw near. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is making intercession for us, and we draw near and cooperate with that intercession. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Amen. So very quickly, five things that we need to think about in this passage. One is posture. Posture. What was Martha's posture? She's busy spinning plates, right? And again, not that there's anything wrong with that, and not that Jesus didn't love her. Martha, Martha. The Semitic doubling usage is a conveyance of love and, and compassion. Martha, Martha. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Like the Lord says on the cross, my God, my God. This doubling is an expression in Semitic style of love and heartfelt cry. We see Martha's posture is spinning plates. I'm busy, busy in the kitchen. Mary, busy over here. Got stuff to do, you know. Sorry to interrupt you, Jesus. Mary's at his feet. What does this mean to be at the feet of Jesus? It means you're being a disciple. It means Mary had a heart to be trained so she could go tell somebody else about the things of God. For a lifetime, in one other passage where Jesus' feet are, are washed and loved, for a lifetime it will be spoken about her. Here we are 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. The position, Mary is listening, waiting at the doorpost, listening for the word of the Lord from, from Jesus Martha is worried about her position. You go and, you know, she's the, the queen of the house, right? You go tell, you, Jesus, tell her to help me. Well, she was assuming too much. Again, did Jesus ask for dinner? Then there's preference. Martha prefers to serve. Mary prefers to sit at his feet. This is not to um, somehow elevate the contemplative um, quiet, prayerful life over activity, work for God. This is a, uh, that's a misnomer. It's not right. 
It's not that service is wrong, because we got to help the poor, show hospitality to strangers, welcome people into our house, visit the sick, go see people in prison, clothe the naked, feed the hungry. Those are activities that are godly. They're not wrong. It's just the priorities that we get messed up. All true service has to be born in the womb of relationship with the Lord first. You hear from God first, then you go and do. Preoccupation. I'm preoccupied. I've got so many things to do. It's, you know, I often tell people, and I told somebody this on Thursday as well, you know how you, you, know how you get down for prayer and you're seeking God and all of a sudden a thousand things come to your brain, what you have to do, you know? And you get completely distracted about it. Oh, I got to call. I got to write this. I, oh, I need, you know, bread. I need, you know, oh, man. The best way to handle that in my experience, is write it down. Have a pad and a paper beside you. And when all that thousand things come to your brain, when you're starting your prayer time, you're just seeking God, write them all down. Once they get out of your brain, you'll find it just like that. You'll be able to press into the presence of God. In fact, I really think the Lord helps us with that because he is helping us make the list of stuff that needs to be done, right? He's reminding us of stuff. So write it down so you remember it, amen? You can do that later, but then concentrate on seeking God, amen. Can you find Jesus in the mundane? Can you hear his voice over the clattering of dishes in preparation? Jesus loved Mary and he loved Martha. Martha is distracted, as I said, with good service. She's a busy believer. So what are some signs that you are being a Martha? You're worried and upset. You're torn up and pushed. You feel pushed by your situation. You are continually unhappy. Even as a believer, you love Jesus, but you're unhappy. Most of the time that comes from just being Martha-like not spending enough time in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're embittered at the attitudes of others. You think Mary ought to get up and help you. Something wrong with that woman. You're embittered at the lack of care by Jesus. You can't figure out why your prayers don't get answered. You get mad. Everything is always on the front burner, Right? Martha's trying to prove herself. Sometimes we try to prove ourselves with our busyness. What to do with a busy mind? As I said, start with praise. That will often break up things in your heart and your spirit and then write everything down. Stay long enough to allow the presence of God to come into your prayer time. Amen? And I want to encourage you, I always encourage people to take a praise break, all right? You know, let's suppose you're working an eight, uh, eight to five job, kind, you know, your workaday world, your 10-hour shift, your 12-hour shift, whatever, and you get a coffee break or you get some kind of break during the day. Why not go out to your car and crank up the worship music, you know, if you can? Or put some headphones on and just crank up the worship music. Give yourself a praise break. It will help. I always liken the anointing to sort of like this giant rubber bubble that's around you. So where you, 
you meet up with brother and sister sandpaper, they just kind of bounce off you, doom, you know? And you're able to envelop them with the love of God because you're prayed up, right? You're not angry, Martha, upset because you got so much stuff to do and nobody seems to care and Jesus isn't answering my prayer and all she wants to do is just be at his feet, you know? But if we can get the anointing on us and stay filled with the Spirit, keep on being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody unto the Lord, if you can do that, then everything else in chapter 5 of Ephesians follows on, submitting one to another in the fear of God. Husbands loving your wives. Wives cooperating with their husbands. Uh, parents loving their children, raising them up in the in nurture and admonition of the Lord. Everything follows out of the Spirit-filled life. Everything starts with a word from God. And His words are spirit and life. So get that bubble going. Boom. Just bounce up, people. Amen? Stuff bounce off you. It won't bother you. But if it gets inside of you, any more time in the presence of the Lord. At Jesus' feet, under the authority. How do we know we're married? Being married like. We sit at Jesus' feet. We're under his authority uh, to be at someone's feet. You remember whenever they sold their land in order to take money to give to the poor and to help people. They came and brought the money and put it where? At the apostles' feet. In other words, it was under their authority to distribute as needed, right? We're at Jesus' feet to become a disciple. Jesus is breaking some social dynamics here because he's allowing a woman to sit in the place of a disciple, a learner. And for that in the Jewish context and society, was a, was, it was a pretty big deal. Jesus reached beyond the, the culture of that day. And uh, she wanted to learn, to listen to his word. Jesus changed the social dynamics. As Pastor Ron would say, we find, develop, and display greatness in our ordinary moments. Your character is formed in the ordinary moments. We must walk across the room to Jesus in spite of opposition and busyness like Mary in spite of all the details pulling at you from all directions, we must choose the good part, the best part, the best part of the meal. We must learn to choose the voice, the word of the Lord over the mundane, in spite of opposition from Martha. Like David, we must make a choice to enter the stream, in spite of the raucous, blasphemous shouts of Goliath. We say about Goliath. And in spite of the well-intended cries of support from the ranks of our own, we've got to learn to hear from God, you know, and that is developed on your own when you seek God. Why did David know what to do? Well, because he had proved the Lord and he had sought God and he had sung his praises in the, in the wilderness as he's looking after the sheep. He's being great in his mundane moments and, com <coughs> sorry, and combining them with the very presence of God. And the Lord's instructing him and giving him courage and help and, and strength so that when he faces the Goliaths, which are rare, by the way, Goliaths are rare. Of course, he had probably had four other brothers, the sons of Anakim. Yes, but not everything in life is a Goliath. Not every problem is a deal breaker, is a killer, is a whatever, you know? And we get upset about mundane things. 
And in our ordinary moments, if we'll learn to seek God, we'll have grace to help us in our time of need. And so David had enough grace to, to begin to shut out the blasphemous cries of Goliath and the, the taunts of the Philistines and the encouraging words from, from his own camp and go to the stream and search for five smooth stones that were jostled and honed and ready for use. The shepherd is looking for you, having spent your mundane moments in the stream of his life so that he can pick you up out of the mundane in a moment when you are needed and put you in his sling and send you out into the head of a Goliath. Those stones were honed in their mundane day after day, the water, the jostling. And sometimes life is like that. We feel like we're being jostled about and, oh, you know, yeah, I'm in the stream. Yeah, I love Jesus. Yes, I'm saved. I'm born again. Hallelujah. But we need to realize that as we look to the Lord, the great shepherd is going to choose to use us. Amen. As we have spent time in his stream, the stream and the river of God. Walk in the garden of God again in the Spirit's wind of the day. May God help us. Amen.